Dr. Carlin Borisenko, it is really nice to finally speak with you. Welcome to Right Now. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You have had quite a whirlwind year. I just want you to get an opportunity to kind of recap for people what it is that you do, what you work on. You're involved in education, advocacy. You're one of the most prominent, I think, national critics out there in the zeitgeist and on YouTube particularly talking about critical race theory. What is the, the recap of your journey and how you got here? Because it, it all begins with Coca-Cola, right? Well, no, it actually started way before that. Uh, Coca-Cola happened in February, but about a year before that, I accidentally wrote an article that went viral on the internet about being a Democrat that went to a Donald Trump rally and realized that Trump supporters weren't bad people. Oh, and so okay. that that was actually the thing that kind of propelled me into the public was that I went through this journey of, you know, waking up from the left and realizing just how crazy my party had become. I was a Democrat from the time I was 18. And just going through that journey um, in the public eye kind of uh, got me involved in the walkaway movement. I was running around the country all throughout 2020 doing walkaway rallies, trying to get people to encourage, uh, encourage them to lead the left. And and critical race theory was a key part of my journey because I wasn't actually a Trump supporter. I was kind of like a reluctant Trump voter up until he banned critical race theory in the federal government. Now, as an organizational psychologist, I had started to see critical race theory and diversity training and all of these things pop up in the HR space around like 2018, um, really picking up steam in 2019. And there was no evidence that these tactics actually worked. They were usually just implemented to, in order to, frankly, appease certain types of employees that were working at these organizations. Well, so I, I, in February 2020, I wrote my article. It ended yeah. up going viral on the Internet. And like the right after that, we had a pandemic and then George Floyd died. And I got to tell you, in the organizational psychology space, you it cannot be underestimated how much of an impact the death of George Floyd had on the corporate training industry and what I was doing, yeah. where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you could only sell diversity training. The world is, is completely different after that. And I think that is a wonderful introduction yeah. for our guest today. This is Right mm -hmm. Now, and I'm Stephen Kent. My guest today is Dr. Carlin Borsinko, organizational psychologist, author, and self-proclaimed rabble-rouser. If you haven't done so already, do give us a like and subscribe to the channel. We have new episodes every Thursday and bonus content throughout the week. So leave a comment, let me know, and I will usually write back and spar with you or say thank you you for saying nice words and it'll all be great and we will be friends. Uh, Carlin, just to kind of go back to a little bit of the, the origin story there. So I remember the walkaway movement I, and I, I say movement in kind of air quotes because when it was happening, I thought it was just like one guy and they were ginning this up way bigger than it was. But I have met now so many people like yourself, Gothics is one as well, who actually did that walkaway thing and they've not only have their lives completely changed, but they're very different people as a result of kind of waking up to the way that the Democratic Party works and the way they try to trap you into its identity politics. And a lot of people will say it's a big grift to walk away from the Democratic Party and then have a career doing other stuff. And you're a libertarian, I'm a libertarian. How is it a grift to be a libertarian? <laughs> you know, it's like we're the most unpopular people in the country. 
Well, you know, I always find this argument to be rather interesting because, I mean, my journey is I was a Democrat. I became an independent for basically all of 2020. Um, I joined the I, I, I tell people I had a one night stand with the Republican Party. I decided at the beginning of 2021 to join the Republican Party because I was not because I was really necessarily on board and believed all these conservative things. But I was like, if people don't actively get involved and try to change things, in order to fight back against what the left is doing, then, you know, I have to be the example of that. So I say I had a one night stand with the Republican Party. I woke up the next morning. It felt like a horrible idea. And I, I quickly started getting involved with the libertarians um, in the state of New Hampshire, the free state of New Hampshire, where I live and uh, ended up in the libertarian party. And you no, know, people always say, oh, she's just changing her party. She's just a grifter. I'm like, what? Gr like, where's my check? Yeah, the, <laughs> like, the, we're making like, like I, I, so much fame and fortune off of being the out of power party. Party that never has a political future. Uh, it's obviously exactly. one, one big grift. So I, I'm really curious about the, the Coca-Cola story because this is this is one of the yeah. things that sort of took you out of like the, the walkaway movement and someone you know saying like, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna change the way that I think about politics too. You end up breaking the story about corporate trainings going on regarding Coca-Cola and sort of anti-racism stuff that they're peddling to their employees. Where did this story come from and how does it sort of factor into the, the environment that we have today? Because there's this idea that like it's all part of some far left Maoist revolution that they're trying to undo the country with critical race theory. And I, I think to some extent that's true, but then you look at corporate actors and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would they want to undo the country? Yeah, so for me as an organizational psychologist, I'm very interested in the practical implementation of ideas. And so watching corporate training, looking at what they're doing, because they post this stuff all over YouTube, it's just something I got in the habit of doing. I started talking about it a lot on my YouTube channel. Well, wouldn't you know it, when you talk about these things publicly, people send you stuff. And one day I woke up and I had this email from an employee at Coca-Cola saying, we have this crazy training that we all just came in today and we were required to do this crazy training. And I said, can you get me pictures? And they said, yes. And within half an hour, I, I had pictures. I did a little work to authenticate the training because the training that the employees were actually doing was based on LinkedIn Learning, which is the most used corporate training platform in the world. And so it was very easy for me to actually go on and see exactly the training that Coca-Cola was mandating its, its employees do. So I, had, I, I know that's yes. in there, right? Yeah. So exactly. So this training was put together by a woman named Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility, one of the patron saints of critical race theory. And there, it was basically talking about how you need to undo your whiteness, how white people are aggressive and they don't listen and they're not humble and any of these things. And they had this culminating slide that literally said, try to be less white. Well, I took those images. I put them out on Twitter thinking it would make a little noise and it ended up getting like 27 million views. And uh, and actually, it was actually really great because it, it LinkedIn ended up pulling the training off of their platform entirely. And what people don't know is it wasn't just Coca-Cola using this training. There were many major corporations that had employees in this training. And so it was a great thing that LinkedIn ended up pulling it off their platform entirely. Yeah, I mean, this kind of thing has trickled down, not just from like the top corporate sector, but down into nonprofits, you know, here in the Alexandria sort of DC area, 
the Little League Coaches Association basically requires this of you now. You have to go through these trainings, through these sort of outside diversity, equity, and inclusion groups, or you cannot be uh, granted the certificate to teach Little League and soccer in the D.C. area. And people wonder why folks are wondering why this stuff is all of a sudden coming out of nowhere and being forced upon you. You know, I was like thinking of like the Microsoft training last week or the, the big presentation that they gave where they were not only apologizing for their, their HQ being on the, the grounds of, of Native American peoples, but also giving their pronouns, telling everybody what they're wearing to, to account for blind folks who might be in the audience, which is a very new practice. And this whole thing just comes out of nowhere. And I can't imagine that any of these people could have said no to doing that. I bet the, I bet the criteria is you have to do that if you're going to be out on stage representing Microsoft or any of these corporations. You just have to, you have to buy into it. Absolutely. They're not going to put you in a position of being in the public eye if you don't buy into what they're doing. But I want to go back and say, where, where did all this come from? It's actually been around for a really long time. There was a document that a lot of this training is based off of. Basically, like If you even just go and Google white supremacist organization, you're going to come up with a checklist of all the things that create a white supremacist organization. You'll see things like writing memos is a trait of white supremacy. Being on time is a trait of white supremacy. Getting your work in on time is a trait of white supremacy, things like that. This has actually been around since the mid like 2000s. So it's been around for over 10 years now. This is not something that just popped up out of nowhere. It's It's been creeping into the HR space. And like I said, I, I presented, I've presented at every major HR conference in the world. Yeah. And I started seeing this stuff creep in really heavily around 2017, 2018, accelerating in 2019. And I, I think that basically what we're getting at here is the, the difference, and we need to talk about it as soon as we get into sort of how this is broken into politics, but the difference between like white identity, being white, right? And then this idea of whiteness as a condition, like being white is an attitude, a thing that sort of characterizes the way in which you interact with the world. This is why you can have like far left commentators talking about Winsome Sears, for example, the new uh, lieutenant governor in Virginia, a black woman, as sort of having internalized whiteness. Or they talked about her as like on MSNBC as a moving black mouth for white causes. It's just a very shocking thing to say on television news. And so that brings me to Virginia, because I think Virginia represents a turning point in how the nation is thinking about critical race theory in what was going to be a blue state in a very blue county. Republicans have seized on this effectively. And I know you don't think it's been entirely constructive, but are you looking at the political climate right now and saying we're headed in the right direction? If not, why? Oh, I absolutely think that we're headed in the right direction. Listen, the fact that critical race theory is a national issue and was the deciding factor of the election in Virginia, I think is a really positive thing. I think it's a really positive thing that parents are getting involved in school boards um, and they're speaking up and they're being more aware of what their kids are actually being taught. I think where I would caution people is to understand that the things you see in the media are the most extreme possible versions 
of what's going on. But that doesn't mean that the less outlandish stuff is any less dangerous. Listen, what is going on in the public schools in particular? I started out looking at this stuff in organizations, but I quickly realized that the biggest problem that we're facing is in the public schools. And what we're facing there is not just critical race theory, but it's this new thing called social emotional learning that is literally about rewiring kids' brains when they're way too young to defend themselves. And you can use that in order to make them easier to indoctrinate into critical race theory or, frankly, any other bad idea that the teachers have. And so um, I think my concern is not that it's now a national issue, because I think that's really good. But the thing of it is, is when you bring so many new people into the movement, I just want to make sure that we're all speaking responsibly about what is actually going on, not just trying to feed into anger and outrage to yeah. get likes and clicks. You know, in my, my school district right outside of Washington, D.C., I'm luckily not in Loudoun County, but our school district undertook these initiatives as well, basically releasing a proclamation from the school board and the city council acknowledging the existence of white supremacy in the school system. You know, superintendent, black guy, guy who runs the, uh, the school board, also black. And you just kind of wonder, then why aren't you resigning? If you have been upholding white supremacy in your school system, why are you not resigning in shame uh, because you're awful? Instead, they just say it and then they use it as a means to just completely remodel education, do away with math and certain learning programs. Uh, you know, they've even kind of like to, to, to really cut into like expectations that you can't be tardy to school anymore in our school district here, that you can't be late because that would be grading different people based on different circumstances. It's the equity versus equality thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you kind of touched on this already, but what people really need to understand is that critical race theory isn't actually about race. When they say whiteness, they're not actually talking about the color of someone's skin. When they say whiteness, what they mean is who owns the power structure. That's why MSNBC could say those horrible racist things about Winsome Sears, because Winsome Sears now owns the power structure. She's considered white. This is why the uh, Los Angeles Times was able to call Larry Elder a white supremacist when he is very visibly a black man. This is why in January 20. 2021, the Washington Post ran a headline that said multiracial whiteness, because it doesn't have to do with the color of your skin. It has to do with who's upholding the power structure. And I know, like, I, I sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist every single time I talk about this, but critical race theory is fundamentally about destabilizing the system. It is just one tool in their toolbox in which they are trying to destabilize our entire system. And I, again, I've watched thousands of hours of these trainings, and the number one enemy of critical race theory and all of critical theory yeah. is not actually white people. It's capitalism. Who is they when you talk about the effort to destabilize the system? Because like, again, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola has nothing to benefit from destabilizing the system. So are they just unwittingly participating in their own destruction? That's the part of this that I don't get because conspiracy takes coordination and I just don't see coordination. It just seems like spontaneous order happening in the worst possible way. There are a lot of useful idiots out there, that's for sure. Mm. And when companies like Coca-Cola hear the term racist, again, they don't think who owns the power structure. They think, oh my God, racist. we don't want to be a horrible, we don't want to be racist. Don't call us a racist, anything but that. That's what they think about. And so they're not actually seeing the truth of what's happening. They're also, by the way, a lot of these programs and organizations are implemented by like mid-tier HR people 
who never think that these programs are going to see the light of day. So usually the executives don't even know what's going on. But no, you are, you are correct in that it is a haphazard kind of association. What I believe is happening is that the vast majority of people who are pushing this ideology have absolutely no idea what they're doing. They have no idea what they're teaching at all. They haven't thought through to the logical and conclusion of what they're doing. 100%. But there is a coordinated group that I do think have nefarious intentions, and they're the ones right at the top, and they're the ones making all the money off of this epic grift. The white academics who somehow think that they, uh, they're going to remodel society, but it's like they always still remain on top somehow. Isn't that curious? Now, so like talking about people who don't know what they're participating in or don't even know what they're trying to dismantle. So critical race theories become the buzzword of conservative media, and I think that's rightfully so. We need to find a way to talk about all these issues because it's like a, a three-headed hydra, and it's always gonna keep growing new heads every time you try to cut one off. You have critical race theory, you have anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think if you had to pin it on somebody for like lumping them all under CRT, Chris Rufo, kind of, you know, the, the boogeyman of the left when it comes to talking about CRT, he's really made an effort to make CRT encompass all of those things. Do you think that that is the best way to go about this? Because the lingo and the specificity is something that they try to use against everyday people. So simplifying it does seem to have sort of a, a, a merit. So funny story about Chris Rufo. So um, so back in the day, even before the Coke Be Less White training, I was the person who broke that the city of Seattle was doing segregated training. They actually segregated their employees into white employees and black employees and had them do separate trainings. Anytime I put information out there, I really hope that journalists are going to take it and run with it. And the journalist that took that story and ran with it was Chris Rufo. And that was actually what launched him into this space. And so I, I say that because I have nothing but respect and admiration for what Chris Rufo is doing. He has taken the bullet for all of us to be the person pushing this, and mm -hmm. he's so good at it, and he's absolutely the right person for the job. However, I do not agree with his position on lumping everything together in terms of critical race theory. I understand why he's doing it. It makes it a lot easier. He's playing with this idea of language. And at the end of the day, I do believe he is correct that language is the battle in which this is going to be fought. I just don't think that it does a service to people to lump multiple things that do have different and distinct definitions into the same category. Now, you can kind of, I, I, I can get around the idea of critical race theory and anti-racism being extremely similar. I can get around the idea of equity. Anytime equity exists, you're probably going to have critical race theory right along with it. But I do think people need to be careful to realize that just because critical race theory gets banned by law in some states, that does not mean that everything is banned. And that is my biggest worry with grouping everything together is it's going to give people and parents in particular the wrong impression that if it's banned in their state, they don't need to do anything else. We can all yeah. go home. No, 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 no. The problem is much bigger. Well, I think that simplification can backfire in a couple of different ways. I mean, I, I talk about this often, you know, as a libertarian, one thing that we are very concerned with are things like mass incarceration, right? Like criminal justice reform, the war on drugs gone completely wrong. There is an, a racial element to those policies that have existed since at least the Nixon years. And when you start talking about that, you are inevitably talking about 
systems. And when you talk about redlining for homes and who can get easier home loans or access to credit, there's a racial component to that and it goes back to Jim Crow and segregation. So like I'm down to talk about kind of the idea of institutional and sort of encoded racism in law, but it's all the other stuff. It's like it's really hard to debate diversity, equity, and inclusion. All those are such nice words. But the idea that maybe we should just try to strip sort of racially tinged ideas out of the legal system, like there's merit to it. Because you saw last week, I think it was Mayor Pete said we need to like <laughs> remodel highways so that they're not you know, going right through black neighborhoods. There's, there's something that's true about that. Do you agree with that? Because I, I think that's the tough balance for us to strike. Well, I certainly do not agree that roads are racist. (laughs) I will say that (laughs) I I will say that no, I actually do agree with what you're saying though. I I don't think that we're at a place of perfection in regards to racism in this country. I'm talking like legitimate racism. Uh You you raised some good issues there. And I do think that we should be able to have those conversations. I actually think that the like critical race theory and how the left is pushing this conversation gets in the way of us having more substantive conversations. And quite frankly, it turns a lot of people off. At the same time, I look at what the the writer is doing, the conservatives, and they just want to strip race out of every conversation. And that's an oversimplification. I don't think that works either. Uh, At the end of the day, my goal, listen, I'm a child of the 90s. I grew up thinking that, you know, whether you're a brown egg or a white egg, you're the same on the inside. I want less racism and not more. And I think that critical race theory, anti-racism, equity, it all leads to more racism. And so I'm not okay with that. So let's talk about where it leads to more, because one of your stated concerns and feel free to recap the the hellish year that you have had with actual <laughs> with actual Nazis uh, is that CRT the all encompassing thing right it has provoked in the right and I think in a lot of political independence too the talking point that it is an anti-white ideology. Now I think on some level that makes sense. Critical race theory and anti-racism creates sort of tiered structures of oppressors and the oppressed. And of course, you know, whites are always going to be at the top of that power structure and therefore the least possible um, oppressed class. And it's, I think it makes sense that people then go, oh, this is an anti-white idea. But it is kind of awful to everybody in different ways. Why are you worried about people getting too hung up on the anti-white idea? Because I do see it having an adverse effect on some people. Well, it's not just the anti-white idea. It is actually the very specific term anti-white. So back in June, I accidentally kicked the hornet's nest of white identitarians. Now, this happened when conservative media was starting to talk a lot. They were using the term anti-white all over the place. And my first reaction to that was, well, no, critical race theory is racist. It's racist against everyone. Critical race theory says black people can't go to the DMV and get an ID and can't work hard and can't show up on time. I find that to be incredibly racist against black people. So it's not just about white people. That was my first argument. I made a video and put it on my YouTube channel, very passionately expressing that idea and ended up getting attacked by actual white identitarians for months afterwards. And even still to this day, they're still hanging around. And what I learned through this whole experience of being canceled by legitimate racists is that they are actually, and they're, they're, it is actually in their written manifesto, they are working to try to co-opt the anti-CRT movement mm-hmm. in order to insert the very specific term anti-white into the cultural zeitgeist. They're decades. trying to get people in the media to say it. 
They have. Yeah, yes, I mean, absolutely. like the American They're Nazi Party clan, like they've always talked about different policies, whether it be welfare, immigration, family policies as being anti-white policies, like even the Civil Rights Act, yeah. right? That if you couch everything as anti-white, then basically then you're trying to push people who might not be inclined to engage in white identity politics towards picking a side. And that's exactly what is happening. And I have seen it, is people are getting like very slowly kind of sucked into the, the orbit of gravity of these white identitarians who want them to buy into this like white well-being nonsense. Yes. And, and what I want people to understand is this is not just a passive thing. They are extremely organized and they actually have groups. The one the one group that I spent several weeks investigating really intensively is this white well-being movement, white positivity movement. Yeah, white they positivity. actually have <laughs> Yeah. Well, they actually have outreach teams. They're incredibly organized. What they do is they go after influential people and they fill their feeds and their email boxes with this anti-white language. And their, their entire stated goal is to get them to say it. And I actually caught them recruiting in anti-CRT groups on Facebook. So parents, when they first discover critical race theory, go onto Facebook. They try to communicate with their friends there to figure out what's going on. These people are actually going into those groups. And I found them in dozens of groups trying to recruit people to their movement. Now, they don't really care about CRT either way. They, they, don't, they don't like it, they don't hate it. They just view it as a tool to recruit. It is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Anytime you see the term anti-white, you have to know this is, this is not a good person. There are useful idiots that use that term again, but it is, it is generally speaking a very bad ideology. I, I don't, I, this is such a delicate subject when we're talking about sort of like the idea of white identity because I think it is awfully convenient in some ways that in the post-civil rights era world, kind of white America's sort of had this like post-racial idea. And it's a, it's a worthwhile idea to try to move on from racial affinity. However, racial affinity I think is baked into the human condition. And I want to be like very clear here. I think racial affinity is just like natural. And we have tried to undertake this experiment in the post-civil rights era to overcome that. Just like the American idea tries to overcome our want for powerful leaders or expedient government. There's all of these ideas baked into the republic that we need to try to overcome certain elements of our humanity. However, when white voters start thinking about themselves as not being like racial at all, like not having sort of a, a tendency to think this way, I feel like that does sort of hide a little bit from reality. What do you think is the right way to think about that? And I know that's kind of like a loaded long question there, but I really am curious if you think like racial affinity is something that is natural, can be overcome, uh, or is just completely toxic, because I believe it to be toxic and it's worth trying to just ignore. I generally think that the color of someone's skin is probably one of the least interesting things about them. Right. And I think that people should try to find identity in the things that they like and the things that they do well and the things that they enjoy and connecting with other people who have those same interests. I mean, listen, it really, the, the term colorblind actually really bothers me. And this is a term <laughs> that the right really tries to use yeah. and the left uses against the right. And how the right means it is. Yeah, I don't see color. Well, I'm sorry. No, you do. Like, <laughs> you if there's do. a black person in front of you, you're going to see that they're black. Um, I much prefer the term color and different, which is to say I can absolutely see what color you are. 
I'm not going to treat you differently based on the color of your skin. And I'm going to do my very best to try to connect with you on a human level. You know, it's funny when I was first waking up on the left, I was surrounded by all my woke friends who all worked at colleges and they were, they were saying, Carlin, you need to listen to black people. And I said, what? I thought I always did. And then they were, they were like, well, well, you know, you need to treat black people differently. And I couldn't help but think like, that's really racist. But I tell that story because when I first started getting to sucked into this stuff before I woke up, I actually found myself treating people differently based on the color of their skin, yeah. which 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 did not settle, settle well with me. And so I think that we need to get to a place where we start to see human beings as people and just stop overthinking it so much. But the, So the anti-white idea, if you start thinking about CRT as particularly anti-white, you're awakening this sleeping dragon in white Americans that has been put to rest in many ways in the, in the popular culture for many decades. And I do see how it is dangerous. I see how it is dangerous. And I, oh, I completely yeah. I completely agree with you that this idea that we should racialize everything is going to end well for racial harmony, racial progress, kids playing nicely with each other on the playground, not thinking at all about skin color. And that's where I come back to your corner, which is this has got to be part of the plan it's destabilizing to the max to try to recenter race in American life. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that if your biggest problem with critical race theory is that how it impacts white people, well, you just proved the premise of Robin D'Angelo's book, White exactly. Fragility. I I care about how this impacts all people. I don't just care about white people. And I think that it's a really short-sighted view. And I just want to put a fine-tooth point on this. Like, again, yeah. I did intensive research on this white well-being, this white positivity movement. It is much bigger than people think it is. I think there are at least 30,000 people in the United States, and I think that that's a low-ball estimate. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's growing. I think it's picking up steam. And I think it's something that people need to be paying attention to. This is not a road we want to go down again. No, we need to be going down the road of individual identity and they want to take us back to the era of collectivism. You know, these, these twin specters of, of communism, fascism, um, Nazism, and, and, you know, again, commies, like this is like the 1940s being redredged up in the 2000s just to try to put us down this road of, of hell and collectivist conflict again. And I am just trying everything I can to get people to focus on who they are as an individual, not what group people are telling them they're part of. Because the more these people try to tell us, like, you know, you have certain groups that you're supposed to be a part of, we go backwards. And I do not want to see that. And I, I think that's maybe like one reason why I, I uh, regret even becoming like a libertarian. Because after I left the Republican Party about four or five years ago, I signed up with the Libertarians, and I already feel like I'm just kind of like back in a group. I maybe just need to be independent. It's uh, It might just feel better for my soul. Well, maybe, but have you explored the Mises Caucus within the Libertarian Party? Because that's really, the Mises Caucus is the only reason I joined Not the Libertarian Party. The Mises all, that Mises oh, Caucus. Oh, no, yeah. no, of course. But the Mises Caucus explicitly rejects identity politics. And for everyone who thinks that the Libertarian Party is woke, well, you're right for the moment. But I think that the Mises Caucus is going to change all that. And I'm actually, I'm actually really excited about the direction of the Libertarian Party with the Mises Caucus doing what they're doing. They're gaining more power in the party, I think, at the, at the 
party's convention in Reno next year. They will control the party. And then I think we're going to have a whole new playing field. And to be really honest, I am really excited about the potential of Dave Smith running for president as a libertarian in 2024. <laughs> I think he's going to make a big impact. And I don't think the Republicans see it coming. And I think to their detriment. Well, he's going to have to reckon at some point with the public about uh, having Nick Fuentes on his show at one point. That's one of those little skeletons. I, I'm not looking forward to that moment. Do you think Dave Smith can really speak to the rest of the country? Because you know he's a he's a good libertarian. I, I do like the guy, but you know there's sort of a, a pugnacious nature to I think a lot of these libertarians, particularly part of the Mises Caucus, who I don't know. I, I just sort of I doubt the ability to connect. Oh, I mean, I think that the the numbers that the Mises Caucus are bringing in kind of speak for themselves. They are connecting. It is growing at a very rapid rate. Again, in New Hampshire, the Mises Caucus started having meetups last year with a couple of people. Now there are hundreds of people showing up at these meetups. It's grown extremely quickly. Um, in regards to Dave Smith, I think if the worst crime that Dave Smith has ever committed is talking to an unsavory <laughs> character yeah. on his show, I think that he's probably ahead of the game so far as presidential candidates go. He's probably in good shape. So with Virginia going down the road of really challenging CRT, electing Glenn Youngkin, Winsome Sears, there's going to be a big push in Virginia to roll back ideas that are, are sort of seeping into all the schools, critical race theory. Um, you are changing sides on this debate. I, I've heard you talk a little bit about it recently, that you don't really believe the schools can be saved. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, has, this year's been radicalizing for you? <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do not believe that the public schools can be saved. I think the ultimate goal should be to dismantle the Department of Education, to fund the schools entirely. Now, I'm not an unreasonable person. I don't think that's going to happen right away. I'll take school choice so. in the meantime. Um, but ultimately, listen, like how I think about it is that almost every single teacher in the public schools today was trained to be a teacher by by teachers who were indoctrinated into critical race theory. And so in order to fix the public schools, we not only need an entire new batch of teachers, we need an entire new batch of teacher trainers. And we haven't even talked about social emotional learning, which is a whole other mess that's gonna be coming down the pike. The reason I bring this up is social emotional learning is basically your kids' teachers practicing psychology without a license. And it is mandated in public schools that took CARES Please. Act funding and ARPA funding. It's in your kids' schools already and it's gonna be impossible to get it out. So you know, there's something to be I, said I, for like, there is no such thing as value neutrality. So like the status quo of teaching, you know, in the pre-CRT days is not neutral. Government always has an objective. And what they're teaching in classrooms is what they want you to consider the objective truth. And so even if you go back to you know a rollback of all these ideas, there will be sort of a new status quo, a new ideology baked into schools, which like you said, is the best case for just Brexiting the system. I homeschool now, and I mean, I would like to send my child back to a school because I would get a little bit of time back, but I also think that it is going to be the best thing for her because she's gonna learn what matters to our family. And what is more American than that? Every person, actually raising their own children, sharing their value systems. I would like that to be the new status quo. But can I push you on one thing? The sure. idea of cameras in classrooms. Give me your case for why you think that this is a good reform in the short term. 
because it'll accelerate the destruction of the public schools if parents can log into a system and see what the teachers are actually teaching. Listen, part of the problem with fighting critical race theory is that we have teachers saying, you don't know what critical race theory is. We're not actually teaching critical race theory. They're almost always lying. And so my concept is that if people can log onto a camera to see their dogs in daycare, <laughs> if people can log onto a camera to see their kids in daycare, if people can log onto a camera to see their kids on a school bus, if people can log onto a camera to see their kids in a school hall or at a basketball game or at a, at a recital, which all of these things are happening, then why can't we put a camera in every public school classroom in the country focused on the teacher so that parents can log in at any time and see exactly what the teachers are teaching. The, the fundamental fact is that teachers do not have free speech in this country. They don't. Teachers are state employees. The greatest trick that the teachers unions ever played was mm -hmm. convincing parents that teachers are not government employees. They're actors of the state. They do not have free speech. They do not have privacy protections. This has already been decided by the Supreme Court. And P.S., the private schools are already doing this. The private schools are already doing this? Where have you seen that? Oh, I've seen that all over. Definitely private schools in New Hampshire, but I've heard from people all over the country that there are private schools that are already putting cameras in classrooms. So, so Carlin, the, the reason that I, I sort of cringe at this, and you've made a good case, and I want to I want to like tell you where where I agree with you on that, but I, I just cringe at this as sort of like a post 9/11 kid who watched in the 2000s as schools became more and more like prisons, just one bit at a time, whether it be police resource officers, and the more school shootings happen, you've got more armed men walking around your public schools, the inclusion of cameras in the hallways and in public spaces. I do think that it is bad for education and even public education for that kind of environment to be where kids are learning. It feels like a gosh darn prison, it's stressful, and I just, I feel like that idea of cameras in classrooms in a weird way punishes the children for the environment that they're in. But the, the distinction you try to make is that the camera's on the teacher only. Is that like the deal breaker for you? Oh, yeah, this is not to spy on kids at all. Though I will say that I agree with you 100% that I think schools are like prisons. I don't think they're good places. That's why I wanted to fund them. And I think that cameras <laughs> in classrooms <laughs> is, is a critical step in order to defunding them. And and, and P.S., I think, by the way, like if teachers know they're being watched, I also think they, they would be more mindful about not teaching blatantly toxic stuff that can get them fired. So is it a perfect solution? No, but we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world where kids are already on camera from the time they step on the school bus until the time they go home at night. It's just not happening in the classroom. So why is the classroom a step too far when it could give parents the information that they need in order to better take care of their child? I guess I just keep thinking like, who is gonna be watching this besides like Fox News producers <laughs> who are just like looking for something that they can put on TV. But as you said, that's the point. You know, the point is to increase accountability and the perception of when I'm talking to these kids, people will hear me. So I'm going to teach what I'm supposed to teach. Because you are correct, and I completely agree with you, this academic freedom idea is BS as far as public schools go. The CRT people and the left, they try to conflate college professors with second grade teachers. You will say, I don't want anti-racism and whiteness as a concept being taught to my child. And they'll go, you don't think kids are, are too you know, uh, uh, fragile to learn about race? I go, I learned about it in college and I think it's fine. I paid to go do that. 
And also, I was an adult. I could handle those ideas and grapple with nuance. But you want to talk to second graders about that instead of teaching them to read and write and do addition. And I don't buy it one single bit. They want us to think about <laughs> second grade teachers as college professors, and it's, it's a lie. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, a nuance that I want to put out there is I'm actually not in favor of there being general public access to these feeds. I think that they should be available to parents with mm, kids okay. in the actual class. But the also the other thing is, too, is they did this all through 2020. Teachers were teaching online all through 2020, completely available on the Internet. They actually already have the tools to do it. They already have the ability to do it. The only thing stopping us is the, is forcing them, quite frankly, to make it happen. Well, I guess just to kind of round us down, what would you like to see happen next in the national discourse on CRT? There has been an effective backlash. You are winning. I think we are, as, a, as Americans, are winning against this ideology, which is strictly un-American. What needs to happen next for this actually to go in a positive direction and not go off the deep end? You know, I think that we are in a really positive direction and I don't want any criticism that I levy against what's going on to detract from that because I think that this is all good. More people know about this than ever. More people are paying attention than ever. I think what I would like to see and something I'm going to be working actively for is to try to bring more coordination to the anti-CRT movement, to try to make sure that different groups are all getting the same type of messaging from a very practical and, again, responsible perspective. I want people to know what, like, what, what is the definition of critical race theory what's the definition of equity what's the definition of social emotional learning how do we how do we know how to go onto our department of education website and understand what's going on how do we do foia requests and i also think that helping parents to empower themselves is going to be key to this. Listen, there, it shouldn't be mm -hmm. the responsibility, quite frankly, of like people like me or Chris Rufo or James Lindsay to do all the work. The parents need to step in, and Virginia is proof of the pudding. Like, people want to credit Chris Rufo with Virginia, and I think he does deserve a lot of credit, but ultimately, Virginia happened because the parents in Loudoun County were protesting for months and months and months, and they did not give up. It was all because of the parents. And I think if we can get the parents involved and give them the tools that they need, that's going to be what wins us the ballgame. I think there is a civic renaissance happening, and it's just people actually paying attention to what the heck goes on at City Hall. Uh, Carlin, it has been a real pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I loved it. All right. That is it for this episode of Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. Another big thank you to Dr. Carlin Borsinko for joining us. If you're watching this right now, subscribe to the channel. I want to hit 25K on subscribers this week. It's a big, big goal. I know we can do it, though. So become a subscriber, and you'll be the first to know when we have new videos up from myself, Brad Palumbo taking down socialists on TikTok, gothics interviews, and much more. Next time, our guest is sex, gender, and politics commentator Ariel Scarcella. Very excited about this one, so don't miss it. I actually met her the other week in Dallas when we were both at The Blaze visiting Glenn Beck. I got to see his chalkboard just saying, no big deal, but we'll see you then. In the meantime, keep asking why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. Have a great week.